The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. beginning a three-week series in Isaiah 11 on the King of Glory in Isaiah 11, Jesus Christ, who is prophesied here. This evening, considering verses 1 through 5, let us hear God's word. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. This is God's word. In this prophecy, the coming of Jesus Christ is described in terms of a shoot growing out of a tree stump. This is a metaphor that brings to mind the low state of the nation of Israel when their Messiah came. A tree stump was all that was left of the royal line of David, that great tree, we might say. In fact, here the name of David, in verse 1, isn't even used. Instead, it speaks of the stump of Jesse, David's father. The mention of Jesse would have brought to mind to an Israelite of that day not the images of power and glory associated with David, but rather the lowly state of David's origin and house in Bethlehem as Jesse's son. And in truth, when Jesus came, he came at a time when the nation was brought low in subjugation to Rome, and the nation was low spiritually with the religious leaders of the time acting as blind leaders of the blind. And Isaiah tells us that in this kind of a situation, the Christ would come. He will be a shoot from a stump. He will be a branch that will bear fruit, verse 1 says. Maybe you've seen a tree stump from a tree that was cut down and some shoots coming out of that tree stump. That's the imagery in mind. In our last house in New Jersey, I recall cutting off a large branch of a mulberry tree that was in our backyard. Landscaping tip to all homeowners, don't plant mulberry trees in your backyard. They are really a mess. But I cut a branch of that tree off, and I had the idea that I would cut it into little pieces of that uh, branch and use them for little seats around the children's sandbox. And a few weeks later, I was really surprised to find little green shoots growing out of those mulberry tree trunks, stumps, that were sitting there on the ground. 
there was still some life in those logs. And Isaiah is saying that this is what the coming of Jesus will be like. Life from a seemingly dead stump, a branch bearing fruit, a branch that will grow. A clear message of comfort and hope and encouragement in the face of God's judgment and discipline that had come on the nation. In fact, chapters 9 and 10 of Isaiah have just spoken about judgment against both Israel and Assyria. But Isaiah 11 says, one day God would show mercy in the sending of his anointed one. There is a lot about this world in which we live, in which there are many discouraging things, and yet God gives many blessings. There is brokenness around us in many ways. There is brokenness even in our own lives, in our own families, in our own homes. And the coming of the Messiah is our ultimate hope. As Christians, we look back to his coming the first time, and we look forward, we look ahead to his coming in glory. And so we must fix our eyes upon Jesus, the shoot that would come and that did come and who will come again. This evening, we want to briefly look at two aspects of how he is described here. He is described as the anointed one, and he is described as the righteous judge. Let us look at each of these. First of all, Jesus, the anointed one. This shoot from the stump of Jesse, this branch bearing fruit, will bear much fruit because he is the anointed one of God. In fact, anointed one is what the word Christ and the word Messiah mean. He will be mightily anointed with the Spirit of God. You might remember that his first sermon he preached in his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, Luke tells us in Luke 4 that Jesus returned to Galilee from his wilderness temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he went into the synagogue there and was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, what does it say? It says he turned to read from the part of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, verse 1, that said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus himself is declaring that he is the fulfillment of all the prophecies, that he is the anointed one. The Apostle John tells us in John chapter 3 that Jesus was given the Holy Spirit without measure, the anointed one of God. And so Jesus is anointed with all the gifts and graces of the Spirit of God. And by the Spirit, we're told, he is given amazing wisdom and understanding. He knows how to speak truth to people's minds and hearts. He is given the spirit of counsel and power. He is able to plan and purpose what he must do and has the authority and power to exercise these plans. He has the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. It's in Jesus above all that we see exemplified godliness, what we might call piety, a true reverence and fear of God in his life. And certainly, Jesus would have had all of these graces and gifts in and of himself as the eternal Son of of God. But here, the focus is on his being anointed with these by the Spirit of God. Well, why is this important? Well, because he is the anointed one as his people's representative. He is anointed. Jesus Christ is anointed with the Spirit 
on his people's behalf. And you see what hope and encouragement that gives to those who belong to Christ. Jesus came to redeem a people for himself. We read it in the, in the call to worship. He came to save his people from their sin. But there is more to his salvation than the forgiveness of sins, as glorious and as important as the forgiveness of sins is. He came also to impart to us all, to those who belong to him, the gifts and the graces that he himself has received by the anointing of the Spirit. He was anointed that we also might receive this anointing. The anointing of Christ the head flows over to the body of Christ, his people, the church. And what hope and encouragement that gives us in our weakness, in our need, in our disappointments, in our confusion, in our doubt and fear. Do we need wisdom and understanding? Do we need the spirit of counsel and power? Do we need to grow in our knowledge of the Lord and learn more deeply the fear of the Lord? Well, I hope you would say yes to all of those things. Well, Jesus is our anointed Savior and head, and he delights to pour out this anointing on his body, on his people. And he freely gives us of the gifts and graces that he has received. He is seated at the Father's right hand, and all power in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he has received the Spirit, the gift from the Father, and he has poured it out on the church. We see it in the book of Acts. Again and again, we see it in church history in the great awakenings and revivals and renewals throughout the church. And Jesus Christ has the power and continues to pour out the Spirit upon his people. What a blessing. What amazing provision for us as his people, as children of God. There is no greater wealth than the spiritual riches Jesus gives to those who believe in him. He gives all the gifts and graces we need. He produces in us the fruit of the Spirit. He makes us more and more like himself. We were talking to someone, this friend of our nephews, when we were in Thanksgiving over uh, in Texas over the Thanksgiving week, and we were talking to this uh, first-year college student who had received a Bill Gates scholarship. I hadn't really known much about those scholarships. They're pretty rare. But this is this young man who lives in this very poor New Mexican town, never knew his dad. His mother really uh, isn't good for him or anyone else. But he did well in high school, and he received a Bill Gates scholarship. So his whole four years of college are paid in full. Not only that, any master's degree work he decides to do, paid in full. Not only that, any Ph.D. work he wants to do, paid in full. That's a scholarship, isn't it? Wow, what a gift. But that gift is insignificant. I'm not saying it's not important, but compared to the gifts and graces that Jesus Christ, the anointed one, gives to those who trust in him, it makes the Bill Gates scholarship seem like nothing. That's amazing, isn't it? The problem is you and I are frequently looking for the wrong kinds of provisions. Instead of the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and power and the fear of the Lord, we are looking for earthly gifts and earthly things and earthly provisions. We want the hardships in our lives removed. We want a life of smooth sailing. But Jesus offers something better, the anointing that he gives through faith in him. It's kind of like the example of how you looked at Christmas Day when you were a child. 
You probably, if you think back to those days, probably you loved the presents and uh, all those kinds of things. But now from the perspective of mature adulthood, you think, how would it look differently if you went back to relive one of those days with the perspective you have now? You probably would want to spend more time with your grandparents. You probably would want to help out your mom more and enjoy just uh, in the kitchen working with her or maybe with your dad or certainly you would pay more attention to the spiritual side, the spiritual message represented by that day. How different would that childhood experience look? And that's an illustration of what I'm saying about how we need to look at the anointing that Jesus Christ has and pours out upon us. We tend to hope and look for the wrong things. And we don't think enough and hope enough about the things Jesus promises by his Spirit. Here we are presented with the Anointed One. We must recognize that we have all we need in Jesus Christ. This shoot that has sprung up, this source of life, this great comfort and consolation, we must walk by faith in the anointed one, the Messiah. And if you haven't come to know him, his promise is that for all who believe on him, he will give you rivers of living water welling up from within. That's the promise the anointed one gives us. Well, not only is he the anointed one, but he's also the righteous judge, our second main point here. Jesus is the righteous judge who is making his judgments known in history now and will one day finally and fully judge the world. We're told in verse middle of verse 3, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. It's interesting how verse 3 says, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or by what he hears with his ears. This summer, there was a great flap. If you're a baseball fan at all, there was this incident in Major League Baseball when Detroit Tiger pitcher Armando Galarago, I can't say his name, was one out away from pitching a perfect game. Probably some of you saw this replayed over and over again on the news. And Cleveland's Jason Donald had this, had this hit that shouldn't have been a hit, but he was called safe at first base by the umpire there, Jim Joyce. But immediately, of course, everybody watched the instant replay. And the instant replay was absolutely crystal clear that he was out. And the umpire just got it wrong. The umpire thought he saw that he was safe, and he called him safe. And there was no way to undo that wrong call. And Jim Joyce apologized right after the game to Galarago, and, and Galarago was completely gracious, and, and they hugged, and, but nothing could be done. And the point I'm making here is that that umpire, that judge, judged according to what he had seen, but he was wrong. Sometimes our eyes deceive us. But Jesus is the absolutely righteous judge in all of his judgments. Jesus judges and will judge with perfect equity. Jesus looks at the heart. He doesn't just judge by the outward, by what he sees or what he hears. 
There is not a single fact outside of the knowledge of this perfect and just judge. In fact, verse 5 describes him. Righteousness will be his belt. He's so righteous in his judgment, he wears righteousness like a belt, and faithfulness will be the sash around his waist, highlighting the unfailing righteousness of his judgment. If you've ever had to judge anything, especially a difficult case, I feel sorry for it. It must be hard to be a judge and to have a custody dispute of a, of a husband and a wife come and they're arguing over this custody issue of a child and they're both presenting their cases and probably both cases sound reasonable. How do you know for sure who's telling the truth? How do you know for sure what the facts are? It would be really hard to know those kinds of things. But Jesus judges unerringly. And he also has the power and authority to execute his judgments. We find at the end of verse 4, it says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. What power, what authority to judge and to execute your judgments. Jesus speaks, and the earth is struck. And with the breath of his lips, just by breathing out, the wicked are slain. What a picture of complete power to carry out the sentence of punishment that his judgment demands. No wonder in John chapter 5, Jesus says, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And he goes on to describe how in the final day that will be the case. Revelation bears that out as well. Revelation 19, we see this picture of Jesus coming on a white horse, judging, and with a, the sword coming from his mouth. But notice that Jesus judges and executes judgment on behalf of his people. Again, just like the anointing of the Spirit, Jesus' judgment is on his people's behalf. Verse 4 says, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Who are the needy? Who are the poor of the earth? Well, sometimes these there may be a court correlation between the physically and the materially needy and poor and those in mind here. But essentially, Isaiah is speaking about the poor in spirit. As Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The spiritually needy who have recognized their poverty of spirit, that they have nothing in and of themselves, that they are sinful, that they need Jesus Christ, and those who have come to Jesus Christ in faith. Those are the ones who look to him for justice. Often, those who are oppressed by the powerful of this world. And the great promise of Scripture is that our Savior and Lord who is exalted at God's right hand and who sees all and who knows all, he will judge on his people's behalf. And you and I can take great comfort in that truth. Maybe it's the wife whose husband has left her and absconded with all the family money. And not only that, but left her with a pile of debt. Or maybe it's that child who has experienced abuse and is constantly denigrated by one of his parents and lives in that kind of atmosphere. Or maybe it's a young person who is bullied in school or maybe on the Internet in some way. This also applies to persecuted Christians and nations where the gospel is under severe attack. It's for the worker on the shop floor who's being persecuted for her faith because she won't join with her co-workers in immorality and drunkenness. 
It's for the college student whose professor has an axe to grind against God, and so that student is persecuted in some way. It's for the family, maybe, that lives in a high crime area and has to fear in that sense. It's for a recent widow uh, on whom uh, a repair scam artist preys. We need to find comfort in Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 describes Christians looking to the justice of God. And I want to make it clear that this does not mean that we have a vindictive spirit. This does not mean we take judgment into our own hands and carry out revenge in any way. It doesn't contradict the fact that we're called to love those who persecute us and pray for them and bless them and to seek to forgive them. But there is a sense in which Scripture calls Christians to take comfort in the righteous judgment of God in Jesus Christ. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul is writing to this young church, and and they have been experiencing persecution for their faith. And, And Paul says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed in heaven in blazing fire. And he goes on to describe that. But there's a play on words there, and the Apostle Paul is saying that these Christians who are being persecuted for their faith are going to find relief. And in fact, the righteous judge, Jesus Christ, is going to trouble those who are persecuting Christians now. The Bible is full of passages like this. You and I must put our trust in Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, for every need that we have, for all wisdom and understanding, for all growth in the fear of the Lord. We must put our trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, no matter what the suffering might be that you're going through, no matter how unfair life may seem to you. And if there's any doubt in your mind about who Jesus Christ is, I hope that you see that Isaiah 11, and then even more fully in the blazing light of the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the one prophesied from of old. You can put your trust in him. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is this anointed one sent from the Father's right hand, sent that we might live in him, sent that we might have forgiveness from all of our sins, and not only that, but to be given eternal life and to have the knowledge that everything that happens in our lives Everything is under your sovereign control, and that one day you will right every wrong, that you are the just judge, and that we can place our trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.